Welcome to the Open Deeply Podcast, where guests open up and dive deep into the vulnerable experiences that shape them. We believe life storytelling has power, the power to heal and inspire others. Your journey towards finding your sexual and personal truth starts now. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie. Welcome to the Open Deeply Podcast, where guests open up and tell us the stories that shape them. It should be noted that Open Deeply Podcast is not a replacement for therapy or therapy. Please know this episode has themes of sexual and emotional abuse and neglect. If you catch yourself becoming emotionally overwhelmed by this episode's content, please get support. Call a friend, a therapist, or call an emotional support hotline, such as 800-273-8255. With that said, before we explore guest stories, we're setting an example by opening deeply first ourselves. In this episode, my co-host Sunny Megatron is going to share the vulnerable truths and struggles that she has overcome to become the epic human she is today. It's a jaw-dropping story of resilience, and I consider myself blessed to call Sunny my friend. Oh, thanks, Kate. Thank you. Um, all right. So it, it's a lot. Buckle in. I am biracial, queer, kinky, non-monogamous, married. I'm the mom of two adult children, and I'm a sexuality and BDSM educator. I host a TV show and a podcast about those same subjects and have dedicated my life to helping people find their true, authentic sexual selves. But there is a lot more behind all of that, and it has really been a weird journey. So I'm going to start way back before I was born with my maternal grandparents, Joe and Carol, because dysfunction rolls downhill. And the reason I'm at this awesome place in my life right now is actually because of the traumas that I've been through. And we're shaped by the people that raised us and our caretakers are shaped by the people that raised them and so on and so on. So to understand the environment my mother came from, it kind of explains everything. So my maternal grandparents, Joe and Carol, who I consider the white side of my family, they met in high school in Chicago. He was the only child of immigrants, and she was the youngest of nine kids from a Southern family. Now, my grandfather, Joe, later in his life became an acclaimed historian. He wrote books that were on the bestseller list, and his specialty was British history and the psychology and formation of dictatorships. After my grandparents get married... He earns his PhD from Northwestern University in 1946, and they end up moving down south, where he becomes an assistant professor at the University of Alabama. My mother, Vicki, was born in 1951. So supposedly, as the story goes, how I've been told, Joe and Carol loved living in the South. My grandfather's this young, popular professor. He's an award-winning lecturer. And I honestly think I get a lot of my teaching style and my stage presence from him. He was really good. So when my grandfather, Joe, passed away in 1991, I went through his stuff. And I found letters that he wrote at this time in 1951 and 1952 to his immigrant parents who were back in Chicago. So that's how I'm able to piece this part of their story together. 
In these letters, he talked about the race riots that were going on at that time in Alabama and how horrible and unfair it was that, you know, it didn't matter the color of somebody's skin. Everyone deserves an equal opportunity to education. So my grandfather, Joe, in his letters, recalls an incident where he was on campus and there was a riot. And he was saying in his letter to his parents, you know, they beat this young woman right in front of me and it was so horrible. And I just I can't stand by and just let this happen. I have to do something and I have to stand up for what's right. So you know, by the way, side note, I was shocked reading these letters. The 1952 version of my grandfather was not the grandfather that I knew. In the 1950s, Joe was a young, you know, brand new white professor who was very outspoken about civil rights in the South. And he even did an interview with the university newspaper about his thoughts, and they printed an entire article about him and what he said. And this was the turning point for Joe and Carol in Alabama and their happy life in the South. People at the university started calling him, you know, that liberal northerner. He's an N-word lover and all this stuff. And the KKK started harassing him and his family. And the final straw was my grandfather, Joe, wakes up to find a cross burning on their lawn. And they were so scared for their lives. He left his dream job immediately and moved his family back to Chicago. So this is supposedly when the dysfunction started, the dysfunction that trickled down to me. They were so happy starting their new lives in the South and heartbroken when they felt that they had no choice to leave. And when they came back to Chicago, they ended up being miserable. So my grandparents, Joe and Carol, and their child, which is my mom, Vicki, moved into my great-grandparents' apartment building. Now, these are Joe's parents, those immigrants who scrimped and saved, worked as hard as they could to buy a 12-unit apartment building on the north side of Chicago. So as soon as Joe and Carol moved in, they started fighting constantly. Also, my grandma Carol didn't like Joe's parents and vice versa. It was a mess, and their marriage started to fall apart. Joe starts drinking a lot. You know, they had this perfect life. They were starting in Alabama and it was ruined when my grandfather Joe spoke up for what he felt was right. Now I'm adding some speculation here, but I feel looking back and analyzing all this, that it was even more confusing and unfair to them at the time because they were white. And this somehow may have contributed to my grandfather's racism against black people when he got older later in his life. So anyway, this whole thing sets the the tone for the dysfunction in my mother's childhood that eventually leads to the dysfunction in mine. So when my mom, Vicki, was growing up with my grandfather, her dad, Joe, even though he was very professionally well-regarded and respected, he was a closet raging alcoholic. He'd come home from work, drink, say horrible things to my mom and grandmother. You know, he was very emotionally cruel. And as a child, my mom was fat and she got made fun of at school. He would lash out at her about that. You know, you're fat and you're good for nothing. All of this when she's only four and five years old. So one day at school, they gave eye exams to the students, and my mom comes home with a note saying that she needs glasses. And 
her father, Joe, refused to buy her glasses. He was like, it's bad enough my kid's fat. I don't want her to be a four eyes, too. So on top of my grandfather's issues, my grandma Carol, his wife, had her own, too. She was beautiful and very proud of her looks, but she had a crossed eye from having scarlet fever as a baby. So through her life, she ended up having a bunch of different eye surgeries and whatnot. Maintaining her beauty became an obsession because she was so embarrassed about her eye. She tried to compensate with her looks and her fashion sense. And she also had issues maintaining her weight. So she started abusing amphetamines. You know, it's the 1960s, mother's little helper. And she ended up completely wigged out and high half of the time. So this is the mess that my mother was living in the middle of. And when my mom was in about eighth grade, her parents ended up getting a divorce. And the divorce was horrific. It got really nasty. My grandmother, Carol, made my mom lie and say that her dad, my grandfather Joe, was sexually abusing her. And this absolutely was not true, but my grandma wanted to get more money out of the divorce and thought this would be a good way to accomplish that. So by the time my mom was a young teenager, she was having trouble coping with everything. Now, before the d divorce, her parents sent her away to a Catholic boarding school, and she tells me later that she had horrible experiences there. She was physically abused, sexually abused. And then after the divorce, her parents end up putting her in a mental facility because they couldn't understand why she was acting out. And, you know, there was also sexual assault that happened there. Those two events really impacted my mother's life for the rest of her life. So when my mom was in high school, she was barely getting by with her grades. And my grandma started giving her amphetamines. You know, she was like, oh, here, here, Vicky, this will help wake you up. It helps me. It's great. So she gets my teenage mom taking pills and it, it's a mess. My mom tries pulling herself through high school senior year, but she couldn't do it. Her last semester, she failed gym. And she was like, you know what? Fuck this. I don't care. I'm not going to take Jim over. I'm not going to summer school. I'm not graduating. I'm done with all of this. And at this time, my grandfather was a professor at Northwestern University, which was very prestigious. She could have gone to Northwestern for free and gotten in no problem. But she was like, you know what? Fuck all of you. And she drops out of school the semester before her senior year when she was supposed to graduate. So my mother tells me this later, you know, when she was about 17 or 18 years old, which would have been 1969, 1970, in Chicago was when she started seeing the very first hippies. And she was super intrigued by that sort of lifestyle. So she hooked up with a group of free thinkers in the neighborhood who also happened to be a part of this brand new venture called Scientology. And she ended up being part of the first org, which is what Scientologists call their churches in Chicago. So at the same time, my mother ends up getting addicted to heroin. And then she gets hepatitis and she's in the hospital. Her parents are, of course, extremely disappointed with her, you know, dropping out of school, doing drugs, hanging out with hippies. And now she has hepatitis. And according to my mother, and I still can't explain exactly how this happened logically, she claims that whatever the hell she was doing with Scientology cured her of hepatitis she tells me one day she's in the hospital. She's like, screw this, pulls out her IV, just gets up and walks out. And she was fine. And she never had another issue. So again, I'm, you know, my logical brain's like, how did that happen? But apparently it did. But around this time, 
my mom meets my dad at the Church of Scientology in Chicago. Now, this part of the story I didn't figure out until the last decade or so, thanks to a DNA test, we'll get there. My entire life, my mom refused to tell me who my dad was. So as I come to find out much later, my dad is called Little Jack. And his, his dad, my paternal grandfather, is known as Big Jack. Apparently, they didn't like junior and senior. They're part of the Church of Scientology in Chicago. Little Jack is about the same age as my mom, about 18 or so. Big Jack and Little Jack, they party together. And as I've been told by multiple sources, they competed against each other for women. So my mom gets pregnant with me when she's 18. And she told everyone she didn't know who the dad was, but... Later, when I took the DNA test, it proves that little Jack was my dad. And from all I can tell, my dad legitimately never knew that Vicky got pregnant by him and that I was his daughter. My mother always took pride in telling me how excited she was, you know, when she was pregnant with me. And she'd say, I quit all hard, hard drugs for you, just like a good mom would do, you know, as soon as she found out she was pregnant. So as a kid... You know, not knowing who these people were, you know, until I hit my, my 30s, I remember the name Big Jack being talked about a lot, you know, amongst my mom and her friends. I'd catch little snippets of conversation like, oh, remember the time Big Jack did this and that? Oh, what a character. What a wild guy. He was so fun and outrageous and blah, blah, blah. And I never thought much about it because I had no idea that at the time they were talking about my paternal grandfather. So I have some theories as to why my mom never told me about my dad, Little Jack. And again, these are things I pieced together decades later after finding out about that side of my family through DNA after my mother had long died. So one thing I strongly suspect is my mother might have been sleeping with both Big Jack and Little Jack. You know, there was a lot of partying and wild stuff going on. It was the early 70s. She legitimately may not have known which one was my dad. In fact, when I got the DNA test back and it revealed that Little Jack was my dad, family members that I had gotten in contact with after that were a little shocked. You're like, really? I thought it would have been Big Jack. Huh, go figure. So there's also the racism piece because that side of my family is black. So despite my white maternal grandfather, Joe, in his younger days protesting civil rights, he was, when I knew him, both casually and not so casually racist. And from what I, was, from what I can figure out is when he was young and idealistic, you know, seeing the race riots and the inhumane treatment of people happen right in front of him, he felt that it was his duty as a human being to fight against it, but also, as I saw from my grandfather's attitude later in life, when I knew him, it's a different story when, you know, quote, these people are fucking your daughter. So the last reason I think that my mom never told me who my dad was, was that she flat out was a controlling, narcissistic, habitual liar. And she wanted me all to herself. You know, she wanted to control what happened with my life. And she didn't want someone that she wasn't involved with romantically to have a say in anything about me. On my birth certificate, I have unknown listed as my father. And she was alone when she gave birth to me. After I was born... My mom tried raising me for a few months on her own, but it was a disaster. She couldn't cut it. You know, even though she no longer did hard drugs, it wasn't working. 
So I ended up living with my grandparents, Joe and Carol, most of the time. So in the years preceding this, despite their horrible divorce and the lying, my grandparents somehow reconciled with each other. They didn't get back together, but they became best friends. So my grandmother, Carol, moved back into that 12-unit family apartment building um, where my grandfather had lived. He lived upstairs with his live-in girlfriend, and I'd go back and forth between their apartments. And strangely, it worked. Everybody was happy. They got along amazingly well. And although I firmly believed that there was nothing going on romantically with my grandparents at that point, the vibe was very much how you think of as a like a polyamorous pod, you know, one big happy family, nobody's jealous, nobody's nasty with each other. And looking back on that, I really feel that that is what helped influence me and one of the reasons why I feel most comfortable now in polyamorous relationships. So you know, although when my mom was pregnant, her parents, Joe and Carol, were like, oh, we're going to disown you. We're outraged. How could you do this? When I was born, you know, they changed their tune. They ended up doting over me. They agreed to help raise me. And as a kid, I had very, very curly hair and dark skin. And looking back at pictures, I cannot believe that this entire white family did not realize I was black. All you had to do was look at me, you know, especially in the summer. Like, even to this day, I spend just a couple minutes in the sun and my melanin activates and I get very dark very quickly. And my hair, they didn't know what to do with it. They kept it short, but they brushed it. You're not supposed to brush my kind of hair. So I always had this weird little afro, right? And my white grandparents would take me to the park or the beach and the other white adults, you know, they they give a look and ask them kind of uncomfortably, kind of whispery, like, is she black? And they'd be like, oh, no, see, look, you know, I'm her grandfather. Look at my hair. It's kind of curly. And look at how tan I am. Our family just tans well. And they just pass it off. My entire childhood, this white family used the excuse of recessive genes and like, well, our skin just loves the sun to deny that I was black. And, you know, they've been dead for decades now. But I, I still wonder deep down if... It was that they were too ashamed to say it out loud or the fact that they did not want to believe I was black so strongly that they legitimately thought that was the truth. I will never know, you know, and they even invented a different father for me. Uh, it's a man that my mom had briefly met and dated after I was born, and he was from a very prominent German family. You know, he was acceptable. So when people would ask, they would whisper, you know, like, oh, Frank is really her dad, when that wasn't true at all. So looking so different without any explanation really bothered me as a young child. You know, I, I literally thought my skin was dirty and I would scrub it and I was embarrassed and I became incredibly shy to the point where aside from when I was inside my home or I was with close family, I was selectively mute. I did not say a word to any strangers outside my home until I was about five. And when I was a little kid, every morning I'd bring this, my special 
avocado green bath towel to my grandmother. And I'd be like, okay, grandma, put it over my head. And she'd secure it with a safety pin. And in my mind, that green towel over my head, kind of looking like a nun's habit, it was my hair. It was long, blonde, beautiful, silky, straight hair. I just didn't understand why I looked different. And at that age, I, I didn't even conceptualize like, oh, maybe I'm black. You know, that came older. But being completely gaslit about who I was and why I looked so different really left a lasting impact on me. So, you know, growing up with my grandparents, Joe and Carol, and occasionally bouncing back with my mom every once in a while was really weird. You know, I grew up in this environment where passive aggressiveness was everything. They denied that I looked different. They denied my mom was, you know, as they described, the fuck up child. They denied the fact that although my grandfather had made a name for himself as a, an acclaimed author and professor, that he was actually a raging functioning alcoholic. They denied how their own dysfunction led to this oppressive emotional environment that we all lived in. And the values that I was raised with, and this was apparent at a very, very early age, is you need to put on your best face and present yourself as perfect, no matter who you have to hurt and what lies you have to tell in the process. That's just what you did as a human. Showing any uncontrolled emotion or vulnerability was frowned upon. Setting your own boundaries and living your own truth, no matter how other people close to you felt about it, was never an option, ever. So early on, that taught me to ignore my internal barometer for, you know, identifying when something's wrong or for expressing myself authentically, for setting limits or even advocating for myself. And all of that I probably picked up on by the age of four. Like that was just solid. This was what life was about. And that would follow me my whole life and be the thing that has hindered me in so many ways. It's still something that I constantly have to fight and try to get out from under from. You know, and I think that that's exactly why I have such a calling to encourage people to embrace their authenticity, uh, to talk about it. Truth telling is huge for me. And education is huge for me too. You know, it's the, the unknown and the things that are different that scare us the most. And when we learn the truth about sexuality, identity, emotions, it disarms them and it makes them not so scary. So during early grade school, I lived with my mom for longer periods. Okay, so as a profession, her job was she was a balloon street peddler. She sold balloons on weekends in the evenings at like popular nightlife areas in Chicago. And for a very short time, she was doing really well financially because she partnered with an amusement park. But still, she was my, even with money, you know, she was my still same chaotic, just off the hook mom. I had no structure when I was with her, like I did when I was with my grandma, you know, no bedtimes, no meal times. If I was hungry, I had to go to the kitchen, get my own food, even at four and five years old. She didn't take me to parks or to outings, you know, places for kids or anything like that. And, but she was never mean. She wasn't, you know, mean, she didn't be, nothing like that. She was good hearted. She meant well. But she was always in her own world and she prioritized the things that served her first. You know, I was an afterthought and she flat out was neglectful. After my first year or so, 
when I was with my mom on a permanent basis, the amusement park closed and her you know great income dried up and she eventually ended up getting a studio apartment in this dilapidated roach ridden building. And there were probably about 15 apartments in that building and they were all occupied by Scientologists. So, you know, before I was being neglected in a nice house with great stuff to play with and a canopy bed, and now I'm being neglected in a shithole, right? And my mom worked nights because she went back to selling balloons on the street, barely making enough money to get by. She didn't really take Scientology very seriously at this point, but a lot of her friends were still involved. It was an opportunity to get an apartment in that building, so she took it. This is a content warning. Sunny is about to briefly discuss her experience of childhood sexual abuse without much detail. Please turn off the podcast or utilize whatever self-care needed if you feel this content might be triggering for you. On another note, so often adult survivors of child abuse ask me, why didn't some adult help? The pediatrician knew, the neighbor knew. If you suspect that a child has been or is in danger of abuse or neglect, you can help. Please call the County Child Protective Services 24-hour emergency response phone. You can choose to do this anonymously if preferred. Now back to Sunny's story. Now, here's where I'm going to give the trigger warning for those listening for child sexual abuse. I'm going to make it brief and try not to get into much detail, but it's an important part of the story. Um, So my mom hired a babysitter for me, which is one of our neighbors in the Scientology building that we lived in. And the first night he babysat for me, he molested me. And I remember at the time, immediately I knew it was wrong. But my whole life, I had been taught not to trust my internal alarms. And every adult in my life gaslighting me about everything made me very proficient at gaslighting myself. It was easy. And I knew that my mom was having a really hard time making ends meet financially. You know, I wanted to see her do well. And, you know, side note, she told me way more about her finances and her adult problems than she should have. You know, I've heard that described as emotional incest, which is a whole nother episode. But, you know, I had that going on. So I had that weight of all of that on my shoulders. And I knew this was the first time that she was able to support us on her own. And she was finally getting her life together. And I felt like by saying something and, you know, taking away her ability to get a babysitter so she could go out and work would end up hurting her in the long run. So I didn't say anything. Now, my mom was never involved romantically with this man, but they ended up being best friends for years. And he moved in with us in future apartments. And from the ages of about 7 to 12, I was abused by him on a near daily basis. So, you know, not only was I harboring that secret, which was huge, and I felt so ashamed about it. You know, I remember at that time, and this was about third grade. I was still embarrassed because I looked different, you know, although this was about the time where I was starting to piece together and I was meeting other kids at school of different ethnicities and races. And I was piecing together like my dad has got to be black. But that also added more shame, knowing that the person who who was supposed to love me the most was lying to me about such a huge thing about me being black and who my dad was. So on top of this, You know, my mom was neglectful 
she didn't give me regular baths. She didn't do my laundry. She didn't take me for haircuts. She didn't even, even if she did, she would not know how to even do my mixed girl hair. You know, we were dirt poor. And one winter I had these huge holes in my snow boots and I'd always try to hide the bottoms of my shoes from other people because it was embarrassing. And a neighbor invited me over and the parents saw the holes in the bottom of my boots. Then they started questioning me, like, don't you have money? And it was just really embarrassing. Like, I was mortified. They ended up buying me a new pair of boots. And incidents like that happened a lot. You know, I go to friends, parents' houses, and this is through the years. And they would buy me clothes and necessities and make off like, oh, it's just a gift. It was on sale. We just, But I knew that they were doing it because they knew I didn't have clothes and I didn't have things. And all in all, because of all this, I felt everything about me was just wrong. So this goes on, you know, until I was about 10, fifth grade. And my grandmother, Carol, who, you know, I'd still see sometimes on weekends, she died suddenly, unexpectedly. And my mom and I ended up moving into my grandma's old apartment in that family building, you know, the 12 flat where my grandfather, Joe, lived upstairs. And now between kindergarten and fifth grade, I went to eight different grade schools. Like I had no stability. And this new living arrangement in the family building, you know, from fifth grade on would end up being my anchor. And I would end up living there until I was 20. But, you know, unfortunately, in this apartment, the babysitter guy still visited. He was still one of my best friends or one of her best friends. And he ended up moving in with us for a time. And my mother eventually found out about all the abuse when I was 12. And that's when it stopped, thankfully. But when she found out, she made this spectacular scene. You know, she kicked him out, threw his stuff out in the street, like went in the street and beat him up. I've never seen my mother hit anybody. That was a little satisfying. But she also screamed things to him out in the street, like where my neighbors could hear. How could you do this to me? And you pervert, you know, you effed my daughter, screaming this in front of all of my neighbors. And I was so mortified, you know, and so upset. And she tried to talk with me about it later. You know, she wanted to know what happened, how long this went. You know, I I wouldn't talk to her. I was crying. And then she starts crying and telling me how something similar happened to her when she was younger with a a friend's dad, a schoolmate's dad. Um, But then, you know, she started making it all about her and and her issues. And even at 12 years old, I could see like, you're making this about you. And we ended up never speaking about it again, ever. That was it. Never mentioned. And, you know, this point, even though all of those horrible things happened, this, this point marked the stability I would have in my life that lasted until I was in my 20s. You know, although we still pretty poor, my grandfather would offer to pay for things. He paid for bills sometimes. He always paid for my dental work. He paid for private high school tuition for me, which was awesome. And, you know, some some basic necessities. But it was weird going to this fancy high school and with these you know fancy people who got cars for their 16th birthday, but I didn't even have the money to go out to the movies with my friends. So that, that was kind of, you know, I didn't know this at the time, but I discovered later in life, one of the things that made this point so difficult is I had a learning disability. It's called nonverbal learning disorder. And it, in a nutshell, 
it sort of presents as a mashup between some of the characteristics of autism and ADHD, like reading nonverbal cues is difficult or understanding the big picture, uh, being able to see people's motivations, like when they're lying. Those are all areas of deficit with nonverbal learning disorder. So, you know, in addition to all these other things happening, uh, my whole life, I always felt completely lost. I think if I had a, quote, normal childhood, I'd still feel completely lost. Like I was always five minutes behind everything that was happening. I couldn't figure out why in some areas I was so gifted, but then I failed spectacularly at other things that should have been a piece of cake for people with my intelligence level. And I always struggled through school and social situations and dating and I spent a lot of my energy as a kid, and I mean, even still today, masking, which which means trying to act normal by studying other people's mannerisms and reactions to things so I could copy them and blend in and seem, you know, quote, normal. In high school, I also found... I think the first hobby or first calling that I ever had, which was in theater and drama. And in high school, I also had lots of friends that were black and mixed race. And although I didn't know my ethnicity for sure, which still kind of fucked with my head, I started accepting that I was 99% sure I was also black. And it was validating to finally be around people like me and to be able to talk about, you know, uh, their culture and learn about black people and go to their houses. I'd never had a chance to do that before. And, you know, granted, I still had to lie about around my family and pretend, you know, oh, yeah, I'm totally white. Because I knew after trying to talk to my mom about it over the years, she just wouldn't tell me or flat out would lie to me about it. So during high school, while my grandfather, Joe, was very nice to me, he paid for stuff he was also really controlling. You know, he lived upstairs, but, you know, he'd always say, you're not allowed to have a boyfriend. Don't let me catch you with a boyfriend. So I'd always have to play to him like, oh, yeah, I'm not dating. And me and my mom would sneak around behind his back and, you know, keep the secrets. And, you know, that secret keeping and the misogyny and the control and the the judgment and, and the self-hate, because I still hated myself, that shaped who I was. I lived for everybody else. I had no idea that I was allowed to have my own boundaries or advocate for myself or even have my own ideas or desires. You know, between that and my learning disability, by the time I got to college, which my grandfather paid for, which I'm thankful for, yeah, I just felt lost, absolutely lost. So my grandfather ended up dying suddenly when I was 20, and he left a significant sum of money. And even though he drunk dial every family member we had and treat them horribly, he always treated me like an angel. I never saw the mean drunk side of him. You know, I would hear about it secondhand from my mom, or even I'd sometimes listen on the phone when she was calling him. But he was so nice to me. Like he was a different person and he was careful never to reveal himself to me like Jekyll and Hyde, you know, and since I was a kid, he always told me that I would inherit his money when he died. And I was supposed to um, look after my mom, you know, even though rightfully so she should be the next heir. She was such a fuck up. He couldn't trust her. And it was my job to take care of her finances and take care of my mother after he died because she was incapable so at 20, I'm clueless, I'm unaware I could have boundaries, and I become the financial caretaker of my mother, who was manipulative, narcissistic, neglectful, habitual liar, the whole deal. 
we ended up buying an apartment building. I kept going to college and slowly things started spinning out of control. You know, she had an allowance. She had access to bank accounts and she was helping manage the building that we owned. And I was super naive. You know, I didn't realize people could lie to me. And we had a savings account that wasn't to be touched. And I never checked the balance because I was like, well, we said that wasn't. Why would she touch it? Like, it just I couldn't conceive that she would go behind my back. And she did. And in a year, she spent over $100,000 out of that savings account on top of her regular living expenses. And she spent them on drugs. And, you know, even though she'd been clean all these years, finally now she had access to money. So she started using heroin again. And naive me did not see it. I'd be like, why are you so drowsy? And she, oh, something, my blood sugar must be weird. And she'd make all these excuses. And I believed it. Again, you know, it's the neurodivergent. I, I, neurodivergence, I couldn't fathom that somebody would lie to me about stuff like that. So as the years went on, she spent all the money. She took advantage of me financially in incredible ways like, opening credit cards in my name and impersonating me and transferring money out of my bank account. Like it was bad. So her drug use got worse. You know, we separated. We hadn't lived in the same building or near each other since the 1990s. And finally, by Christmas of 2006, I had had enough. I kicked her out of my house during Christmas dinner and never spoke to her again. And she ended up dying, what, nine months later in September of 07. And I I don't regret a second of it. You know, having the courage to finally set my boundary with someone who had put me through so much hell was empowering. And I have absolutely no doubts that it was the right thing to do. And yes, I'm sad that she died. And I'm sad that it was really rotten timing. But I also recognize none of that was my fault. And I should have set that boundary years before. Um... So I look at that as a as a major win for me and a major milestone. It was the first big boundary I had ever really set. Um, yeah, yeah, it was it was life changing. It really it made me turn a corner. But, you know, my mother had already passed by the time I took the DNA test and found my dad's family. Unfortunately, my dad died from complications with AIDS in the early 90s, so I never got to meet him. But piecing things together, I uncovered more lies that my mom told me, and I realized the lengths that she went to cover up his identity. You know, as a kid, she always said, she always told me to stay away from a certain street. It was a street called Jonquil Terrace, and she'd be like, oh, never go there. It's a bad neighborhood. There's streetwalkers. There's gangbangers. You'll get shot, blah, blah, blah. And as a teen, I actually did walk down that street a couple of times. And I was like, it looks like a normal street. Why is she so paranoid? Well, I find out later, that's where my whole paternal side of my family, my paternal grandfather, my dad, you know, Big Jack and Little Jack and her huge extended family lived on that street for decades. That family was walking distance from the apartment building that I grew up in as a kid. The whole time, I never knew. We all played at the same local park. I could have played with them, run into them, never knew. You know, and my mom, she always perpetuated this tragic mulatto trope with me. You know, if someone would ask if I was black, later she'd laugh about it and be like, oh, isn't that funny? They thought you were black. You know, you should be lucky you're not. There's nothing wrong with being black and I'm not racist, but... Life is so hard for mulatto children. They never fit in anywhere and they grow up with horrible lives. So many are depressed and they commit suicide. And I mean, you know, you've got some recessive genes and you look a little darker. People get confused, but you're white. 
aren't you glad you're not mulatto? Those kids have so many problems. Like she just go on and on and on. And not knowing my ethnicity really fucked with me. You know, as a younger child, I put two and two together. Uh, or before I put two and two together, I was kicked out of my friends' houses. Like when their parents would come home and see me, they'd be like, get that kid out of my house. Or uh, if I was playing on the playground with some kid in a sandbox, like their parent would come and take them away and kind of give me a look. Or when I was a teenager, I would get stopped in stores and, you know, made to dump out my purse. Like they'd accuse me of stealing stuff. And I never understood like why my white friends never had that happen to them. So... All right, let's let's switch gears to my romantic life. As you can all see from the, the, you know, so far, I had zero male role models, zero examples of what a good romantic relationship looked like. And the closest positive example I had were my grandparents and his living girlfriend. And, you know, even though there wasn't romance going on there, it was very close to what we call now like kitchen table polyamory where everyone got along. And uh, as a teen, I was completely disconnected from my intuition. My learning disability affected my ability to read social cues. The culture that we're living in is misogynistic and sex-shamey and passive-aggressive and secretive and, and critical. And I went to an all-girls high school. An all-girls Catholic high school could not come to terms with the fact that I was having crushes on girls. It was just too much. I consider myself lucky if a guy wanted to ask me out. So my eldest daughter's father, Jim, I met him my senior year of high school, and he was fun to party with. We'd listen to music, smoke joints, hang out, the whole thing. He was a really good-hearted person, but he was also incredibly irresponsible. He couldn't hold a job. When he did have a job and he'd get paid, he'd be like, oh, drinks on me. He'd spend his whole paycheck in one night. We dated for six years before I got pregnant. And at that point, when I got pregnant, we moved in together. I was finishing up college, which he did not understand. You know, he was blue collar Chicago background, mended manual labor. They were in unions. They got their hands dirty and their wives stayed home and took care of them. And our circle of friends very much had that same attitude. Going to college and getting an education to them was unnecessary. And intellectualism was almost an insult to them. So I always downplayed my education. Um, I did get my degree in marketing with a woman's studies minor, but it was hard, you know, probably because of the learning disability that I didn't know I had at the time. It took me seven years to finish. But after that, I got a full-time job at one of the top ad agencies in the world. I had a baby at home, you know, irresponsible guy drinking beer on the couch. And he had the same attitude about my job. You know, yo, you think you're so much better than me because you work in a fancy office. And, you know, at this time, I was a people pleaser with no boundaries. And I was, I never argued with Jim. I never threw my accomplishments in his face. I downplayed them because I knew he couldn't emotionally deal with them. And I didn't want to make him feel bad by being too smart. So the relationship fell apart when I was about 29. Our daughter was five. And I had really been starting to focus on my own identity. You know, like, who am I and what do I want? I brought up the possibility of an open relationship with him. And he was, what are you out of your mind? Did not like that idea at all. Meanwhile, he's cheating on me, which made no sense. I also started to come to terms with the fact that I had always been attracted to women and I liked kink, but I never brought that up to him. You know, I didn't elaborate after the whole open relationship thing. 
I immediately rebounded into a horrific relationship with my second daughter's dad, Kevin. In one respect, it's the biggest mistake of my life, but in another, it's not because I had this awesome daughter out of that who's now 19 and amazing. So this was a fast and furious courtship. What I know now is like he was love bombing me. He was manipulative, narcissistic, you know, con artist, criminal level con artist. He made my mother look like a walk in the park. And he presented as well-traveled and he owned a business and he was financially stable and he had a good career and a house and all this, which was impressive to me, you know, after Jim, but I didn't realize I met him right when his life started spiraling out of control. And there were so many red flags that I just did not see. I got pregnant immediately, which I come to find later was an oops that he actually orchestrated. Um, we moved in together and to people looking in from the outside, we appeared to have a great life. You know, he was so good at pretending he was this great guy and everyone believed it. But behind closed doors, he was horrifically abusive, you know, alcoholic, financial abuse, manipulation. And it got worse as time goes on. The following part of Sunny's story talks about false threats of suicide. False threats are not the norm. Please always take threats of suicide seriously. Leave assessment of the credibility of suicide threat up to professionals such as a therapist or a psychiatrist rather than yourself. If the person in your life truly wants to die and or has suicide plans and a means to carry out that plan, you need immediate assistance. Call 911 or your local emergency number for help. Now back to Sonny's story. You know, a few times a week for the eight years we were together, he would keep keep me up all night with attempts to end his own life, which was horrible. You know, I wanted to do everything I could to help him. But as the years went by, the lies started getting more outrageous. And I didn't want to believe it, but... And he told me this, it became evident, and he told me with his own mouth that his suicide attempts were fake, and he was using them to manipulate me, which I just couldn't even conceptualize. And he told me he had mental illness diagnoses that he actually didn't have in order to manipulate me. He even faked having cancer, which, I mean, this is like, it's a made-for-lifetime TV movie. Like, what? You know, he shaved his head, he faked doctor's appointments, the whole deal. And, you know, for eight years this happened. And later on, you know, I, after we broke up, worked with police to try to get him arrested, like bad stuff happened. I don't know where he is today. And I don't want to know. But I was about 37 or 38 when that ended. And it was right about the time that my mother died. And I was finally free from, you know, these manipulative, severely fucked up people that have plagued my whole life for the first time ever. And, you know, prior to this, I felt like life would just happen and pull me along and I wasn't in control of any of it. So, you know, I had never felt before what it was like to set boundaries or put my well-being first or to think about like, what do, what do I really want? And I started to piece together how much these fucked up themes in my life affected everything. And it conditioned me, you know, all of those things conditioned me to gaslight myself. So suddenly I saw the pattern of how I was always living for other people. You know, I was loyal to my mother, even though she repeatedly neglected me and took advantage of me because society told me, well, of course you always have to love your mother. You don't have a choice. I was loyal to men that abused me because, well, of course, you know, uh, for a woman, your man always has to come first. 
I put the things that I really wanted and that I enjoyed last because, you know, society told me that's selfish, that's not ladylike, oh, it's emotionally threatening to the men in your life and you're not supposed to do that. And I also learned more about my learning disability when I got older as well. And I realized that many of the things that I thought were wrong with me or that I beat myself up for not understanding actually had a neurological reason. So this was the recession. 2008-ish, I was laid off from my secure corporate job of 17 years. And this was a company I thought I'd be with until I retired. And not because I loved it, because society told me, you know, be loyal to your company your whole life and you can be rewarded at the end with your 401k. I was doing what I thought I was supposed to do. So my abusive relationship, my connection to my mother and my job all ended at the same period of in my life. And that really put me on the path to where I am now. Sexually, I started exploring. I got a girlfriend, not monogamous relationship, but open relationship girlfriend. I have threesomes. I got into kink. I focused a lot on figuring out what I wanted now that I was in control. Back in high school, when I discovered theater, my career aspirations were to act on TV. And I shelved that idea because my grandfather's like, that's not a real job. And in college, my original academic concentration was psychology, specifically human sexuality. And I told people I wanted to be like a younger, hipper Dr. Ruth. But in the 90s, there wasn't much of a career path for people specializing in sexuality besides therapists. And I knew I really didn't want to be a therapist. Sorry, Kate, but it's just not for me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so when I but when I brought sex up to my family, they were just like horrified, like you can't do that. So that's when I like focused my minor on women's studies because I'd taken all the human sexuality courses I could and that was like the closest I could get. And I switched my major to marketing because it was a way to use psychology, which I loved, in a field that would give me more serious money-making potential. So when I embarked on my journey of self-discovery, I I was so shocked at how easily it dovetailed with my original career and interest aspirations. I started reading all the sex and kink books I could. You know, I wasn't sure yet how I was going to start teaching sex at it, but I knew I needed to acquire the knowledge first. So after being single a couple of years, I took a year off after being laid off to decompress and do lots of self-studying. I met my current husband. He's also my sex ed co-teacher, my business partner, Ken. He's been kinky for decades. He was already doing kink education. And Ken also owned a tour company where he hosted Chicago history tours and sex ed tours. And that was perfect for me. I'm a history buff, you know, for my grandfather. And then I got to start teaching sex ed when I began working for his tour company. And the theater part of myself was satisfied teaching and giving tours because I could be theatrical, you know, very reminiscent of my grandfather's lectures. So Ken and I dated for quite some time, you know, not living together, not dating exclusively. And eventually we did get married in, in 2014. It's always been a polyamorous relationship, which is a requirement for me. And, you know, the, it's because a sense of entitlement and control I had in monogamous relationships with my prior partners is something that I never want to live with again. Um, and things just felt so into place so quickly when I started my sex ed career. It was it was amazing. I started a blog and a YouTube channel 
in uh, 2011, I got flown out to L.A. to do some sex ed web series stuff. It eventually leads to my TV show, which aired in 2014. And I've been doing sex ed and sex coaching in a number of different capacities since. And I, I really feel like I'm doing exactly what I should be doing. And when I teach sex ed, I teach the younger me that I wish I could have told these things to. You know, if sex itself wasn't such a mystery, if I had known that my pleasure mattered, if I had known it was okay to be pansexual and kinky or that non-monogamy was a perfectly acceptable relationship choice. You know, if I had known about things like consent or that I was allowed to have boundaries or about emotional literacy and how that factors into relationships and also how being neurodivergent, how that factors into all of this, like, holy shit, that would have changed everything for me. So, you know, also in some respects, I feel like I started my sexual and emotional journey or life at 37 or 38 years old, you know, but in some respects, so I kind of feel like I'm behind, but in some respects, I also feel like I'm light years ahead of where I should be. And, you know, I suppose that part I haven't quite figured out yet. You know, had I known all of this, I could have avoided so much trauma in my life. But at the same time, if it weren't for my traumas, I wouldn't have figured all this stuff out in the first place. And It's a shame to me how these systems of dysfunction that happen in all of our lives, in society, they bleed down to our individual relationships. And it was such a detriment to me expressing my sexuality, understanding myself, understanding how I fit into the world and pursuing my own happiness. You know, one of the biggest light bulbs for me was all of these kinky inklings I have and, you know, non-traditional relationships, pansexuality. I thought something was wrong with me because of my childhood abuse. And that's why I was like that. And when I really sat back and I reflected, I realized I've always felt this way, even before the abuse, even before I was born. And to me personally, that realization was huge. But, you know, on the same token, I've also learned and realized along the way that, you know what, if, if trauma did influence those things, nothing would be wrong with that either. It's just the way it is. You know, and it, it's funny to me how I can tell my story from my perspective today, and I guess you and, and you know, whoever else, and it appears to have an end. Like, I'm a sex educator now and I'm happy. Done. I figured it all out and I have my shit together. Yay. Um, But in reality, right now, this is still the middle of my story, even though it sounds like the end. And I could very well be in the middle of, you know, having another another big life revelation right now. But I can't see that yet. And I'm not going to be able to see it. I'm not going to be able to make sense of it and figure out how it fits into my story until I'm looking back at today from years into the future. You know, so maybe I really don't have all my shit together. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe that's the way it goes. You know, we all think that we're on top of everything when we're in the present. Like, oh, we know everything. And it's only when we look back and we're like, oh, God, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> so, yeah, as of this point, that's my story. Oh, my God. Epic, epic story. And, and I'll have to say, from this outsider perspective, it looks like you're kicking ass from here. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing that amazing story. Um, I'll have to say, I mean, gosh, there's so many things I could pick up and talk about. But one thing uh, that was helpful for me is just hearing your story as a biracial person, like what, what you experience being biracial. And just saying, you know, biracial people are not a monolith. 
but I felt like I could kind of understand better what a biracial, a biracial person might go through in terms of racism and invalidation of identity due to you generously telling us about your experience. And regardless of where you are now, your resilience is phenomenal. And what you've accomplished despite it all is really awe-inspiring. And I'll have to say that, um, you know, we've been talking about the journey from, you know, getting free from the weeds, getting free from disconnection, and then starting, and then that moment that you get free and you start to connect to so many things. Like you had that moment in your story too, where you were free from your mom and you were free from the toxic ex and you started to just connect to, you got free from the job. The job wasn't that bad, but it wasn't your true calling. It wasn't your true path. And as soon as you got your true path, things just started to light up just like a freaking Christmas tree, you know, and that's similar in my story as well. And, and another thing that's interesting to me is that the disconnect goes generations back to your grandpa. Like here he was lit up with that job down in Alabama that he loves so dearly. And one event, yeah, there was the harassment with the KKK, but that led to that one um, event where they were burning a cross in his lawn. And at that moment, his basic human right to reach his human potential unencumbered by the threat of domestic terrorism was yanked from him. And that cascaded all the way down to you. And you can see how, like in your childhood, you know, you just, you didn't have any anchors, you know? And, you know, as soon as you started getting rid of that weed system, all these things that were disconnecting for you, you were able to reclaim the true path that your grandpa didn't get to keep. And that's, that's a victory, not just for you, but your whole family tree. Damn, chills. I didn't really like see, see that clearly until you said it. And I'm like, <gasps> <laughs> So between our two bios, there are so many freaking themes to discuss, right? The number one, the ethnicity and what it's like to be biracial. Number two, gender roles and the whole overtaker, overgiver dynamic that kept coming up in both of our stories. Number three, the impact of kink for trauma survivors, you know, and what does that mean? People always, you know, bring that up quite a bit. These are mm -hmm. just to name a few. And that's why we're going to do an episode solely devoted to finding meaning in our stories before we invite our first guest on. And so listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you will join us again next time when we dare to open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Barrett.